welcome to episode 1270 of Effectively Wild, the Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. I'm afraid that we might have to share our love with the rest of the nation now. One thing, first of all, I'll point out, I'm setting a minimum now of 40 plate appearances. William Destiny was <laughs> up to 48. Setting the minimum of 40 plate appearances, he's now second in baseball in contact rate behind only Bravik Valera, a player that many of you have only heard of because he came up in the previous identical fun fact that we did yeah. a few days ago. But anyway, most importantly, I was a, I was just at a bar, just at a bar with friends like a normal person who doesn't live on the internet on Wednesday night, and there was a TV behind me. I turned around at one point, and who did I see? On the television, running around third base, but Williams Astadio, who has now, I would assume, his first ever, like, national video highlight. I don't think anyone cared when he... probably not, right? Because he had, before he was even famous for other things, he was famous for the no-look pickoff in spring training, right? That's That's, that's true. He went viral even before he got to the big leagues. Yeah, right. But now people have seen his face. They know more about him. They've seen him do it in the major leagues. And on the downside... Williams Estadio is now going to be well known for being a funny looking baseball player, but on the upside, more people now know about Williams Estadio, and as far as I'm concerned, there's plenty room in this bandwagon, and the more support he gets, the more likely it is that he sticks around in the major leagues. Yeah, I'm fine with it. I don't need this to be like the indie band kind of example where you resent when they go mainstream and they sold out, and you like to talk about how you knew them before they were big. I hope that Williams Estadio becomes a superstar and everyone gets the joy of learning about him as we have because he is good and he is unique and he is evidently very memeable <laughs> he is uh i believe his nickname is uh la tortuga yes he is nicknamed affectionately the turtle or the tortoise i guess by his teammates but you know this all no, astadio has got he's got some highlights now he's got some success under his belt and he's got a nickname he's got people in the dugout who are like who are friendly with him and just helping him feel welcome now mm-hmm. sure his early pitch framing numbers aren't very good but it's been like five games it doesn't really matter he's thrown out two of four potential base dealers and he's hit so as long as williams astadio is playing i know that some of you out there might be thinking are when are they ever going to stop talking about williams astadio <laughs> on the podcast but the answer during this regular season is no no we're not and he just right. had a highlight so you know the baseball is probably going to be without bartolo cologne after this season he hasn't been very good it's hard to see him getting another opportunity to pitch at least with any regularity and while Williams Estadio was far, far younger and far better, I think, than Bartolo Colon, there's a <laughs> there's a certain uh, affection people feel for the baseball players of unusual form. And as long as Estadio has his form, then uh, I guess he's going to have the potential for broad appeal. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to stigmatize his body type or anything, but he is kind of reclaiming it for himself i know that via a translator after he did come around to score on wednesday night from first on a double he said i just wanted to show that chubby people also run so i guess uh he is embracing this image and yeah we're not really trying to go out of our way to talk to him we have in the past (laughs) but now we don't need to he is actual national news so we would be doing everyone a disservice if we did not talk about Williams Astadio on a daily basis at this point it seems 
He's just looking at Google News. Williams Estadio was tired after first a home run. MLB.com. Minneapolis Star Tribune. Twins Estadio goes viral with sprint around the bases. KMSP TV. Twins catcher Williams Estadio. Quote, chubby people also run. Now, uh, I believe the, the top sprint speed he reached from first to home was 25.7, whatever the units of measurement are, which is mm-hmm. not super fast. He's no Harrison Bader, but he uh, he looked like he was fast. And I, uh, I've brought up a few times the story of when myself and Rob Nyer and Matthew Corey tried to outrun David Ortiz. We were not sharing a field with David Ortiz, but we were trying to outrun his time. And mm-hmm. I am reasonably certain that I am, I go to the gym most days, Pretty sure I'm slower than Williams Estadio going around the bases. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I'm sure I'm slower than Williams Estadio. I'm sure a very high percentage of the people listening to this podcast are slower than Williams Estadio. So any big leaguer is better than you at <laughs> everything <laughs> physical, pretty much. So I just discovered a, a fun fact today that I wanted to pass along to you. And this will be slightly out of date by the time people hear this, but not too out of date. So... Everyone knows that Shohei Otani has 19 home runs in, as we speak, 304 plate appearances. The fun fact is that every other pitcher combined in baseball this year also has 19 home runs. (laughs) In their case, 4,634 plate appearances combined, 19 homers. It has taken Shohei Otani 304 plate appearances to hit the same number of home runs. So it's him versus every other pitcher, literally, and he is probably going to win. Yeah, that's a pretty good fun fact. I think it's it's also it's interesting to me. I hadn't I haven't thought about it too much, but just the fact that the Angels are giving Otani the opportunity to play out the year before he decides that he's going to have Tommy John surgery. Now, obviously, I don't think too many people are in a rush to have an invasive procedure done to their arm, but. If you are Otani, you could think, well, you know, the sooner I have it done, then the sooner I can rehab, the sooner I can get back on the mound. But he is presumably enjoying this. He's getting something out of it. He's continued to be a good hitter on a team that's just playing for for nothing. So, yeah, this is a lot of fun. I don't know how much longer we'll be able to make honest comparisons between Otani and other pitchers hitting because it's beyond obvious that he's not just another (laughs) pitcher hitting. But it is is hysterical, and it, it continues to be hysterical. Yeah. Well, that is the home run race that I am most excited about down the stretch, Shohei Otani versus all other pitchers. But I think other people are interested in the J.D. Martinez Triple Crown race. I guess he's in the running not only for the Triple Crown of the American League, but also of the entire major leagues. He's a really good hitter, and Triple Crown stats are what they are, but he's good no matter what stats you use. So I've been interested lately because there have been all sorts of silly, probably MVP arguments being made because you have the traditional stat candidate in J.D. Martinez and then you have the sabermetric stat candidate in Mookie Betts and they're on the same team. I mean, Mookie has good traditional stats too and J.D. Martinez is also good no matter what stats you're looking at. But people are drawing that distinction and I think looking for ways to make a case for one or the other. And one popular case I've seen lately and Ken Rosenthal wrote an article about it and I've heard it suggested on broadcasts is that J.D. Martinez makes everyone around him better because he has this analytical approach to hitting and he's sort of like, I don't know, Johnny Statcast in the clubhouse (laughs) and he is just spreading the knowledge of launch angle everywhere he goes and so therefore... 
he is in some way responsible for the Red Sox success as a whole, their team success, which is striking. And we got a listener email about that from Patreon supporter Jeremy, who noted that the Red Sox have gone from 65 offensive runs below average last year to about 60 runs above average with a month to go, with the only real personnel change being that they added J.D. Martinez. My pattern-seeking brain is having a hard time believing that everyone merely slumped at the same time last year, and they're all good at the same time now by coincidence. Does Martinez deserve credit here somehow? Is there some other explanation? Chalking this big of a turnaround up to randomness feels so unsatisfying to me. And I look back at, you know, expected WOBA versus actual WOBA for the Red Sox last year, and it matched perfectly. I think there was a perception that they were underperforming, that they had been projected to be better. But in terms of their underlying results, there wasn't a whole lot of evidence that they actually had been. Now they're way better. The big notable change is J.D. Martinez. How should we think about J.D. Martinez's role in that change? I mean, it's pretty substantial when you consider that J.D. Martinez is one of the, I don't know, five best hitters in baseball. And he was mm-hmm. filling in for, I mean, who was the Red Sox DH last year? Hanley Ramirez, I think and assume. So, mm-hmm. I mean, just that alone, Hanley Ramirez last year had a WRC plus of 92. And this year, J.D. Martinez has a WRC plus of 170. So even by itself, before you think about J.D. Martinez maybe making some of his teammates better, that is an enormous, enormous leap. I mean, Martinez has been worth five wins above replacement. Last year, Hanley Ramirez was a little below replacement. So that's like, I don't know, 60 runs of offense right there that J.D. Martinez accounts for just by being a better DH. But beyond that, there was uh, Kenny Rosenthal in his article. He mentioned that early in the season, I think it was even spring training, Mookie Betts was coming off a year that by his standards was a down year in 2017. And he said he he wanted to make some changes. He wanted to get back and, and become a better hitter. Now, he'd been a better hitter in the past. But apparently, at least according to Rose, though, or according to the people that he talked with, J.D. Martinez and Red Sox hitting coach Tim Hires in tandem suggested that Mookie Betts make a little change to his swing plane. Mm-hmm. And now one thing has led to another, and all of a sudden Mookie Betts is leading Mike Trout in war. So mm-hmm. it's it's one of those cases where I don't – maybe Mookie Betts was going to make that change on his own. Maybe Tim Hires was going to suggest he make that change on his own. J.D. Martinez doesn't necessarily have to be the reason that Mookie Betts is a a probable MVP or a possible person who gets it in the shorts when J.D. Martinez wins the MVP. I don't really know. But this is at least one of those reasons that I know it's kind of cliche to say, but I like if there's any reason for me to like award season, I don't care about who actually wins the awards, but it is an interesting thought exercise in that. I kind of appreciate having this kind of uncertainty because at the end of the day, there are things that you can do that don't show up in the numbers. There are effects you can have that are not falsifiable, which is frustrating from one perspective. But I don't know. I think it's kind of fun to think about the impact that J.D. Martinez might have had on his teammates in a way that doesn't just talk about like bullcrap lineup protection because that's not what this is about. Right. Yeah. We're not even saying it's about emotion or inspiration. It's about concrete recommendations and improvements. And I don't discount that as I've been working on this book, I've been looking at old stories about player development and players who've given tips to other players and they've paid off. And certainly there have been hitters who had that recommendation. Guys like Ty Cobb and Ted Williams were renowned as teachers of hitting. 
and obviously as hitters, but they were able to impart their knowledge and and really improve a lot of teammates. And both of them ended up as managers. And if you look at what happened when they took over their teams, everyone in the lineup got better and they didn't really have great teams to begin with. So it doesn't look all that impressive, but you look up and down the lineup and all the hitters improved. And there are a lot of hitters who credit their careers to one or the other of those guys. And so I think that kind of disputes that notion that you can't teach if you were good yourself because it came so naturally to you that you don't know how to explain it to someone else. I think that may be true for some people, but I think that most people who are elite in their field probably did put a whole lot of work and effort into getting that way. Mm -hmm. And so there are players like that throughout history, and there's no way to confirm it really or say he was worth this much of this other guy's war because he told him to make this change and therefore he gets this percentage cut of the improvement. But there's got to be something. I mean, there are suggestions that actually improve people. And if you made that suggestion, there's value there. So I don't know whether for me that's enough to make up the difference between, say, Mookie Betts's war and J.D. Martinez's war. Probably not. But then again, what if J.D. Martinez is partly responsible for Mookie Betts's war? So it is kind of a fun conversation to have and also kind of a conversation that it helps to have been there and to talk to all these people about. So it's kind of hard to judge from afar. Yeah, this gets into, it's similar to, at, at Fangraphs, we've been on the verge, it seems like, of putting up catcher pitch framing statistics for a very long time. And one of the reasons I think that it still isn't up on Fangraphs is that if you give start giving catchers credit for the value that they provide or take away with their pitch framing, then you can't just leave it there because you also have to try to figure out some way to change the numbers for the pitchers who are pitching to those catchers. And you can do it sort of straight across the board and say, well, this catcher was, I don't know, five runs better than average per 200 innings. And so we're going to knock down this pitcher's performance by five runs per 200 innings. You could try to do that and maybe get somewhere, but it's just really complicated and probably something that you can't actually suss out statistically because not only are are pitchers pitching to different strike zones, but they would also maybe have the knowledge that they're pitching to different strike zones. And so they might just change the way they pitch depending on who's catching them. It just gets into this this thought exercise that you I, I can I sympathize with David Appleman and the people in charge of Fangraphs for not having tried to rule this out yet because it's incredibly complex, even though mm-hmm. it seems kind of frustrating to not have the uh the the pitch framing numbers up there at all and i should also say maybe going back more to to your point talking about jd martinez and his possible effects on his his teammates this kind of reminds me one of the things that might not be fully appreciated about like hitting or pitching coaches is we always get these anecdotes like i don't know i always go back and this is dating me a little bit but i always think back to 2005 when the mariners traded matt thornton to the white Sox and he couldn't throw strikes but he was a hard throwing lefty and Don Cooper, the White Sox pitching coach, was like, make this little adjustment. And all of a sudden, Matt Thornton became one of the best lefty relievers in baseball. Mm-hmm. And so you hear those anecdotes. More recently, there's been like the race heritage anecdotes or I don't know. There's been the independent swing guru anecdotes about uh, swing mm-hmm. changes that, that players have folded in. So you hear about these cases of, of coaches who can make a difference with individual guys. But 
something that is probably not appreciated enough is that just because a coach or someone can make a difference for one other guy doesn't mean that he could do it across the board. Some guys are just more receptive. Some guys can connect with with players better than they can other ones. And so with J.D. Martinez, we're getting pretty into the weeds here, but it's possible that J.D. Martinez really did help Mookie Betts, and it's possible that he made Rafael Devers worse or something. Maybe he's made Christian Vasquez worse. They were just like, just because... He might have a positive impact with one or two guys. Doesn't mean that it's it's true across the board. But again, this is just getting so weird and hypothetical that I think I'm just going to wrap it up by saying that hey, did you realize that today Ramon Laureano recorded another assist? Here's why that's cool. <laughs> so I uh, I uh, I wrote an article. I wrote a draft about Ramon Laureano that's going to be published on Friday. It looks like I have to update it. So uh, I think Ramon Laureano, to whatever extent he's known by people, it's because of his crazy throw in his like second week of being in the majors. He made that throw from like the warning track to first base to double up a runner. And the throw is on the fly. It was like a 321 foot throw that people were comparing to prime Ioannis Cespedes. So people noticed Ramon Laureano because of his arm. And his arm is very good. His defense is also very good. And his hitting is interesting. It turns out he's like my new Keon Broxton. But uh, so Ramon Laureano, as we were talking, he recorded an assist. Now, it's one of those like secondary assists, I think. I was just looking at the play log and he threw the ball in and then the cutoff guy threw the ball to get a guy. But it doesn't matter. He gets credit. So Ramon Laureano has already six assists in the major leagues this year. He's been in the major leagues for a month and a week. And if you include Ramon Laureano's triple A numbers, and he missed the start of the season because of a broken finger, by the way, if you include his triple A numbers and his major league numbers, Ramon Laureano this year has 19 outfield assists. The major <laughs> league leader has 12. It's Billy Hamilton, Lorenzo Kane, and Starling Marte, Kyle Schwarber, Andrew Benintendi are in second with 11. It's not easy to look up minor league defensive numbers league-wide. It's so not easy that I didn't even try to do it. But 19 assists is an awful lot of assists. And it's not often that someone has an arm that's like actually worth gushing over. But man, Loriano's arm is really sensational. He's a really exciting player. Yeah, I wonder if the Astros are ruining that trade because the Astros <laughs> traded Ramon Loriano to the A's just mm-hmm. in November for Brandon Bailey, who is a 23-year-old pitcher. He is a sometime starter, sometime reliever, and he is in double A now, it looks like, and seems like he's doing fine. So it's not like he isn't amounting to anything, but Ramon Laureano has been worth a couple wins already to the A's in a pennant race with the Astros, and the Astros just gave him away last year for a minor league pitcher who hasn't contributed anything to them yet that is not quite letting J.D. Martinez go, but <laughs> it's uh, the kind of move that comes back to bite you. I mean, I don't know whether they should have thought or known that this would happen because Ramon Laureano did not hit nearly like he is hitting this year, last year. Last year in A, he had a 668 OPS, and this year he has a 917 OPS in the major leagues. So... That happened. I don't know if he made any changes, but obviously the defense and the arm have been there. Yeah, for a little background, Loriano in 2016 in high A and double A was one of the best hitters in all of the minor leagues, and uh-huh. he was considered basically untouchable by the Astros. Uh, David Forst with the A's uh, said something to the effect of, a year ago, we tried to trade for him and we couldn't get anywhere. The Astros just wouldn't even talk about it. And then after 2017, when Loriano did not hit very well in double A, 
The Astros not only were willing to trade him, but they didn't even protect him on the 40-man roster. That's why they traded him to the A's in the first place, because they didn't want to expose him to, I don't know, the Rule 5 draft. And so they they traded him to Oakland for a guy, a prospect who didn't have to be on the 40-man roster. So he was... Uh, he was sort of lost in a roster crunch, and the A's were like, well, we'll, we'll take it. So he uh, he comes in, and he immediately gets injured in spring training with a broken finger, but he comes back, and he's basically hitting like he did two years ago. So Loriano is, what, I think he's 24 years old, and he's got a good arm, he's got good speed, plays good defense, has power, he's patient. The only thing he doesn't do is make contact a bunch, but he seems to make enough of it, and it looks like... I think my favorite fun fact that I discovered when I was putting this article together is that Oakland center fielders this season have combined to be worth 1.5 wins above replacement, and Ramon Laureano accounts for 1.7 of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did I mention, by the way, we're going to be talking to Emma Bachelary in this episode? Did I get there? I don't think so. <laughs> no, I don't think I did. So anyway, by the way, in a, in a very small <laughs> amount of time, we're going to be talking to Emma Bachelary of Sports Illustrated about the Women's Baseball World Cup, which wrapped up. I believe at the end of August, and she wrote about it for Sports Illustrated about a week ago. So we have a good conversation there. But before we get there, I should have done that right after the intro, but had to get to Estadio stuff. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Well, David Wright news came out. We talked about David Wright recently when he was still in the minors. He's been rehabbing at the major league level for a while, and he had a press conference on Thursday. It sounds like he is going to play one last game in late September and that will be that and he is not using the r word he is not saying that he is retiring i think for contractual reasons because if he says he's retiring he will not get the rest of the money that's owed to him although everyone seems to know that he's retiring so i don't know where exactly the line is there but i hope he gets whatever money he has coming to him because he was a bargain for the mets for years and was a great player in franchise history looked like he was on a hall of fame trajectory Sadly, will not get there, but was an incredible player, and it's pretty cool that he is going to be back for one game, and I hope there is a sellout crowd that will actually have a reason to go and see the Mets in late September, so that's nice, and I'm sure it will be one of those not-a-dry-eye-in-the-house type moments, especially if he manages to do something positive in the game. Yeah, what is it, the uh, the medically unable to play list or something like that, uh, mm-hmm. which... I am pretty sure is what Prince Fielder wound up on. Is that yeah, incorrect? I think so. And so, yeah, Prince Fielder uh, couldn't continue his career because right. I think, what was it, also a neck injury? Yeah, it's not a voluntary retirement. Neither of them wants to stop playing, but right. they're just unable to keep playing. Yeah, of course. So I guess, I think based on that precedent, I, I think that means David Wright stays on the Mets 40-man roster, or is that not correct? I don't know, but I guess there's still insurance payments that will be going to the Mets for that contract, which is what matters to the Wilpons. But (laughs) at least David Wright gets to come back and take a final bow, and that's nice. You don't always see that sort of gesture, but really, what do the Mets have to lose here? Nothing at all. And uh, I don't know whether that will be a Jacob deGrom start or not, but I guess he has something to lose, but he's been losing all season long, so that's okay. We're recording this on the day that, not to change sports here, but the, the, we're recording this on the day that the Ottawa Senators, my favorite hockey team, traded the best player that they've ever had. And they, uh, <laughs> they, they traded Eric Carlson to the San Jose Sharks. So what? You've got Angels fans who were so annoyed by national media talking about, oh, maybe the team now needs to trade Mike Trout because Shohei Otani won't pitch for a year. 
And Angels fans get really defensive and they say, no, that's stupid. Never trade Mike Trout. I remember that feeling. Rooting for the Mariners when they were bad. Felix Hernandez was good and under club control. And everyone wanted the Mariners to trade Felix Hernandez. And it felt like it would be the most challenging thing to ever imagine and to stomach. And then uh, a hockey team that I like uh, elected to make such a move by trading maybe the best defenseman in the world to another team. It's heartbreaking. And it's one of those things that it has reminded me that actually sports are bad. Uh, and you don't always, uh, if you if you get down to it, really, a lot of the owners are, are people that you don't, you know, really want to support because they're just so far removed. So the the reason that I went on this little uh, detour here is because with with the Mets in particular, you don't always assume that they're going to be able to handle anything well at all. You just kind of assume that these imbeciles are going to get everything wrong, like almost literally everything wrong. So just the simple fact that they're making the right gesture for David Wright at all, and it's the simplest possible thing to do, to give him a start in a game that doesn't matter because the team sucks. Like, it's, it's not it's not hard to do. It's a very easy thing to sell to the people who are in charge. But just the fact that the Mets are able to do anything that rewards someone and shows some amount of freaking humanity... It, you don't get these moments that often in sports. And so as sad as it is that we're likely all going to be watching the last Major League game of David Wright's career, at least it's something that the Mets haven't yet effed up because owners everywhere F up everything. Yeah, and it sounds also like Joe Maurer might be riding off into the sunset at the end of the season. Unclear, but he is strongly considering it, it sounds like. And these are two guys I sort of associate in my mind. They are almost the same age. I think Maurer is about 100 days younger than David Wright. He has also sort of had a disappointing tale to his career, not to the extent that Wright has because Maurer lasted longer and accrued more value because he was a catcher and such an incredible catcher for years, but obviously hasn't been going out the way that he wanted to. But he had concussions and right had spinal stenosis and occasionally this happens and it's unfortunate. But unlike Wright, I think that Maurer did rack up enough value over his healthy years as a catcher to be a Hall of Fame guy. I don't know whether he will get there. It's kind of tough when you have a case, someone like that, who even by the time he retires, it feels like his prime was a really long time ago. But if you just look at the numbers... They're really good numbers. So he managed to accumulate a whole lot of value in a pretty short time. And the fact that he has been just kind of a middling first baseman without any power over the last few years hasn't really added a whole lot to his case, but hasn't really detracted from it. He's compiled a, a few extra wins that might push him over the top. Yeah, I think we talked a few months ago about Joe Maurer's possible Hall of Fame case, and I have a I come around just because of all the reasons that you already mentioned. There's something about, I guess there's two things about Joe Maurer's career that are kind of eye-opening to me. And one, of course, was the season in 2009 when he hit 28 home runs. This is a player who never otherwise hit more than 13 home runs in a season. Joe Maurer just kind of having his, I don't know, Jacoby Ellsbury year in 2009 and just winning the MVP, which was outstanding. I always remember that that year, Joe Maurer... Batted 365, had an on base of 444, and selected 587. Just absurd numbers yeah. for a catcher. Unbelievably good. But something else I haven't been able to avoid seeing. It's less fun to talk about late career Joe Maurer, just as it's less fun to talk about late career almost anybody. But anecdotally, I've noticed that a lot of players who are having good seasons seem to be 
swinging more aggressively and they're going after the first pitch more often and I haven't figured out the right way to tackle it but I feel like in this day and age there's a lot more benefit to being aggressive early in the count because pitchers are so good at mm-hmm. throwing put away pitches and and getting from two strikes to three but I'm just going to read there are 148 qualified hitters in baseball this season 148 in terms of the uh, their propensity to swing at the first pitch Javier Baez unsurprisingly is the leader at 49 percent he swings all the time by all the time, I mean about half the time. Ozzy Albies, Freddie Freeman are second and third. If you go to the other end, you always like going to extremes. Third to last, first pitch swing rate, Brett Gardner, 10%. Mm-hmm. Second to last, Mookie Betts, also basically 10%. Joe Maurer, 4%. 4% swings at the first pitch. This is just some straight-up J.J. Hardy nonsense. But if you look over Joe Maurer's career... He's swung at the first pitch only 9% of the time. He has very, very seldom had a swung at a three uh, pitch in a three and no count. He's just been patient. I'm not going to say to a fault because his career has been outstanding, but he there's <laughs> there's not a lot of players like Joe Maurer anymore, and it just could be a reflection of the era because, again, it's hard. You don't want to get to two strikes, but Joe Maurer deserves some amount of credit or at the very least intrigue for being a player who doesn't strike out very much, but who is has also been very patient because that means Joe Maurer has found himself in deep counts, and yet he's still been able to make a lot of contact. So sure, in a sense, he's ended up hitting like White Ichiro or something in the later days of his career, but he is uh, statistically really interesting in, in several different ways. I just went to Hardball Talk to see if there were any very recent news stories, and the most recent story is... Kyle Freeland's season deserves more attention. <laughs> uh, just don't go don't go down that road. We've all tried. We've all been there. There was like a Kyle Freeland day where we all wrote articles synchronized <laughs> to be on the same day. And uh, I don't think it helped. Although I will say that since our Kyle Freeland push, Kyle Freeland has continued to pitch very well and justify our attempting to bring some attention to him. So good for him. Yeah, on uh, on this very day, Kyle Freeland got the win in a start against the Diamondbacks, although he allowed three runs in six and a third innings, so worse than your standard Kyle Freeland start. But his ERA stands at 2.96, which is still very good. So Kyle Freeland, uh, we <laughs> we don't get any more attention for talking about him. I'm pretty sure that we're losing listeners by the second as we talk <laughs> about the Rockies, but I will say the Rockies still hanging out first place. Two games ahead of the Dodgers as we speak. They might win this division. That might happen. (laughs) It seems like I've kind of just been like, yeah, okay, it might happen all season long. But we're now midway through September, and it's still happening. So the Dodgers are winning as we speak also, but the Rockies have already won, and they have a couple-game cushion in the last column. So there is a real chance that the Rockies could actually topple the Dodgers here. Should also say something else. So, okay, for the longest time, even though the A's and the Mariners were for a while close to the Astros, I we both kind of assumed, oh, well, it doesn't matter. The Astros are going to win the division. And the Astros probably are still going to win the division. But it's gone with lesser notice. But even though the A's are losing right now, they have closed to within one game of the Yankees in the yeah. American League wildcard. So no, the A's have gone from not making the playoffs to this team is definitely making the playoffs to this team could have a home game in the playoffs against the Yankees. And now I know, I know it's, it's one game, anything can happen, but just in terms of like the, the viewing experience as an observer, I would so much rather watch the Yankees and the A's 
in Oakland than to watch them <laughs> yeah. in New York. It's just such, it seems like it would be such a more fun environment. I've seen enough playoff games in Yankee Stadium. You've been to playoff games in Yankee Stadium. It's not the mm-hmm. same as the old Yankee Stadium. There's a variety of reasons for that. Oakland, they're going to be fun in Oakland if they get the chance. Yeah, selfishly, I'd like to go. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> I enjoy attending wildcard games. I don't attend all postseason games or even that many postseason games in person. But if there is a wildcard game that happens to be played in my city, I will go and that will be fun because it's just a, a great atmosphere for those single elimination games. So I will try not to let my feelings about that sway what is best for all. But yeah, that is a close race. And as we speak, the Cubs-Brewers race is equally close. So these aren't really the races that I thought were going to be close at this point in the season, but at least we have some because the Braves have pulled away in the NL East and doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of intrigue left there, although there are still a lot of head-to-head games left. But yeah, Brewers really giving the Cubs a run and Rockies more than giving the Dodgers a run and all these teams that we didn't really expect to be in these situations. It's exciting stuff. Yeah, for uh, we'll we'll get to the interview, I guess, in a second. But one last thing, at least, that I will point out for all the writing that people have done about the Brewers and about Josh Hader, who is, of course, one of, if not the most dominant reliever relievers in baseball. Okay, hold on, I always struggle with this one. One of, if not the most, is that then plural <laughs> or singular? Help me out here. <laughs> yeah, I usually try to write around that because <laughs> yep. that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> Hate that one. But anyway, yeah. uh, so we've talked about Josh Hader plenty. Uh, who is one of the best relievers in baseball, if not the best reliever in baseball. That's how you nail it. You just make more words. <laughs> nice. But if you look at the top five relievers this year in win probability added, uh, one of my favorite numbers to look at for relievers, you've got uh, in fifth place, Craig Kimbrell, fourth place, Josh Hader, third place, Edwin Diaz, first place, Blake Trine, and second place, Jeremy Jeffress. Jeremy Jeffress has been, by this weird measure, the second most valuable reliever in baseball this season, you look him up, he's got a one three nine ERA, he's striking out a bunch of guys, he's getting grand balls, he's not walking as much. Jeremy Jeffers has been through his share and more of of off-the-field problems. I believe he's he's opened up about some anxiety that he's, he's suffered through. But anyway, this isn't meant to be a profile on Jeremy Jeffers, but rather just some sort of recognition of how great a season he's had for Milwaukee and how important he's been, because by win probability added, he's been exactly what Josh Ader has been. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we can take a quick break, and we'll be back with Emma Bachelary of Sports Illustrated to talk about the Women's Baseball World Cup. So now we are joined by Emma Bentleri of Sports Illustrated, who recently, last week, wrote a feature article that was titled Growth of a New Game Inside the Women's Baseball World Cup. Now, I don't think it reflects too well on me, but I can tell you that I think this was the first I'd actually heard of the Women's Baseball World Cup, which might make a statement about the media coverage of said World Cup. But Emma, hello. How are you? Hi, how are you guys? Doing very well. And so I guess just to get started what can how much can you tell us about the history of the women's baseball world cup i understand it's been around for about a a decade and a half but if uh, if you were were to discuss the history of it in something that's in like a a podcast sized 
forum. And uh, how how did it come about? How long has it been been going? And how which teams have been have been the most dominant? Yeah, well, starting in I think two thousand one, the first sort of informal version of international women's baseball competition started with the U.S., Canada, Japan, and Australia. And that went on for a few years in what was called the Women's World Series. And then in 2004, the World Baseball Softball Confederation picked it up and started doing it as like an actual internationally sanctioned tournament, which that's the same group that runs the World Baseball Classic. So yeah, it started officially in this forum in 2004. And at the time, I believe there were five teams and uh, it's held every other year. So then fast forward to now and there are 12 teams. And when the tournament started, the U.S. was one of the more dominant powers. They won the first two World Cups, 2004, 2006. But ever since then, uh, Japan has just really dominated. They've won every year since 2008 and have not only won, but have been really, really dominant in those wins. They haven't lost a game since 2012 now. And yeah, they are by far the uh, team to beat here. Yeah. And there's a good reason for that, as you explain in your piece, which I'm sure that we will get to soon. But before we get to how baseball works in other countries and how it maybe should or could work in ours, how is women's baseball structured in the United States right now or not structured as the case may be? Yeah, so it really isn't structured uh, as you kind of alluded to. Basically just a system where, you know, at the youth level, you'll have girls playing with boys when they're like really little, but as they get older, more and more are pushed into softball. I know like for me growing up, I wasn't a very good softball player, but I did play. Um, And it was just like never presented as an option to play baseball. It was just when you turned like eight or nine, you just played softball because that was what girls did. And that's the experience for a lot of girls playing at that age that you just go to softball because there are girls softball teams in middle school and in high school. And then eventually at the college level with scholarships and that's how it works but for girls who do want to play that means they'll usually be the only girl on a boys little league team the only girl on their boys high school teams there are a tiny handful of women who have played in college all of whom have been the only woman on their team Mm -hmm. and then past that for international competition like this it's just something that's held as an open tryout. This year, I believe they had a little more than 100 women come out to try to make this 20-person team. And yeah, they were able to practice for, I think, like a week before they do this big international competition. But yeah, the open tryouts held in June. Women come from all over the country, most of whom are playing by themselves on boys or men's teams, and then practice for like a week together before doing a big international tournament in August. Mm-hmm. So uh, within your article, you you mentioned Team USA as a first baseman named Malika Underwood. Maybe it's Malika Underwood. I uh, I don't know for sure, but she is thirty seven years old. She's a first baseman, and you mentioned she's she's been around now because of of her age and because of how new the women's baseball World Cup is. She's been around for essentially the the entire time. She's seen it from from the ground on up, and now she's playing with uh, a lot of younger teammates, a lot of people of an age that maybe wouldn't have been available or wouldn't have been aware back in the early 2000s when the, the World Cup was first created. But I was curious, maybe at the beginning or maybe now, you, you talk about how there's an open tryout for, for the U.S. team, but how big of a player pool is there not only of, of players who would have interest, but players who can maybe afford to come to the tryout and, and take the time, have the resources to actually try to be on this team in the first place? Yeah, that's absolutely an obstacle that 
you know, USA Baseball, I believe, pays for all of their expenses at the tournament, but for going to the tryout, which this year was held in North Carolina, yeah, that's an expense that people have to shoulder that definitely shuts people out, I would imagine. And in terms of how big that player pool could be, it's kind of hard to say. Each year, there's about a thousand girls who play baseball at the high school level. I'm not sure about numbers beyond that, but yeah, it's not a huge player pool, but certainly the fact that its team selection is held with an open tryout that people have to travel to cuts it down even more than it's already cut down by all the factors that have shrunk it to begin with, I would say. And so I think there's a conception and maybe a misconception that the goal is or should be to advance to the major leagues or to the minor leagues. And certainly there have been women who have aspired to do that, and there are still. And that is a noble goal, but it is not the only goal, and it is not maybe even the majority goal, which you detail in your piece and which I think might be somewhat surprising. I think often the goal is just to find a way to keep playing and ideally keep playing with other women and play at a professional level. And that has been achieved elsewhere, but not yet here. Yeah, definitely. I think there's like this cultural idea that baseball is for men and softball is for women. So any women who are playing baseball must be playing baseball because they want to play with men and the ultimate goal for them is MLB. But yeah, for a lot of these women, like you said, that's not the case at all, that they're just playing baseball because they want to play baseball and their dream would be to do it with other women and against other women, that the idea that it's their success couldn't be validated until they're playing with men at the highest level isn't true. Like they think they can build, they would like to see their own highest level built with and against other women. So you had mentioned for for player recruiting in the U.S. Obviously, there's a there's a small pool, and there's there's not much in the way of high level programs and and training. And yet, despite those structural disadvantages, the U.S. won the first two women's baseball World Cups. But ever since then, as you mentioned, Japan has won all six. I believe they've won the the thirty games in a row. And presumably, the major reason for that is because in Japan they have built a system such that there is organizational support. There is even and a, a league, a paid league, where women are able to, I believe, featuring four teams, where women are able to compete with other women against teams of other women and, and make a living. So if you could summarize the grassroots movement to the professional league development in Japan, how, how did this go from interest to being now where I, I think the, the U.S. would only dream of getting to? Right. It, so... As this was explained to me, it kind of happened in parallel levels where there was a group of basically school teachers over there, like gym teachers, health coaches who noticed that, you know, girls love baseball when they're young and then they just kind of stop playing because there aren't opportunities for them and thought that was kind of silly. Like, why don't we start encouraging girls to play in elementary school and then starting middle school teams and even if we could eventually down the line start high school teams. So there was a group of teachers who had kind of banded together and started sowing those seeds in Japan to grow the game in schools and starting with it just as a school opportunity. And that movement kind of really took off just because interest increased through word of mouth. Girls started advocating for it at their own schools and that grew and grew. And now there are, I think, like 30 or so Japanese high schools that have their own girls teams. So that was happening over the last 20, 25 years or so. And then at the same time, there was 
a movement to start a professional league, which finally got off the ground in 2010, I think, which was started by the executive of a health company who'd been impressed by watching some high school girls play and thought, like, how amazing could this be if there was an opportunity for women to play professionally and to get paid to play and to be able to focus on baseball as a potential career. So and that league started in 2010, which in turn really fed the movement at schools. And since then, it's just been a matter of that pipeline for players at the professional league has grown as more high schools have started teams, a handful of colleges have all girls baseball teams now. And yeah, just in the matter of really just like 25 years, uh, it's grown at every level from high school teams all the way up until the to this professional league. And as a result, they have a really thriving program now. And it seems almost as if, and you mentioned this in your piece, that maybe it's harder to overcome the existing system in the U.S., which funnels girls into softball, either from baseball or before they even get to baseball. Whereas I don't know what the pre-existing system was in Japan, but there didn't necessarily seem to be that bias, at least from reading your piece. And so it's almost like not having to go from zero to 60, but having to go from zero to 60 and then overcome this wall that's in your way and then back up and reverse and go back to the beginning and then go to 60 again in a different direction. So it's kind of harder to overcome this institutional belief that girls will just want to or should play softball at some point. Yeah, definitely. Like softball exists in Japan. There are girls and women who play softball, but it's not as like deeply entrenched as it is over here. And another big part of that is that college scholarships don't mean the same thing because college costs so much here that a college scholarship and athletic scholarship can be totally life-changing for someone. And knowing that you can get a college scholarship to play softball when you won't be able to get a scholarship to play baseball really means something. Whereas there, just because college isn't so expensive, that just doesn't mean the same thing or hold the same value and push as many women towards softball. Now, I understand you you don't work for Team USA Baseball. You don't work for the Women's Baseball World Cup. You were a a reporter on site to to put together one feature article. So I, I do not hold you to the standard of knowing everything about everyone. But one thing that you do mention and that is confirmed by Wikipedia is when the when there was the first Women's Baseball World Cup, there were only five countries who were represented. And, and most recently, there have been not only 12 teams who participated in the World Cup, but also there were qualifying rounds for countries that, that wanted to, to make it in. And so that means there were more than 12 teams that have developed out there. So if anything, how much do you know about how this has taken off in other countries? Because it's really easy to focus on our own country or the the dominant program from Japan. But obviously, this is something that is about more than more than just one or two places. Yeah, definitely. It's really kind of a flywheel effect, I guess, in that just by having it exist in 2004 and 2006, countries saw that this was a possibility that it might make sense to have a women's baseball program that like the Dominican Republic competed for the first time this year. And obviously the Dominican has competed in the World Baseball Classic like several times now. So they have had that men's baseball program competing in international competition for a while. And now finally, after, you know, seeing like, oh, there is a a goal for a women's program. If we were to have one, there's a place for them to compete. Other countries have this more and more have started adding it and being successful with it. So yeah, I don't know quite as much about what exactly that process has looked like for countries beyond the USA, Japan, to a lesser extent, like Canada and Australia. But 
it definitely has grown just because the fact that this tournament exists gives countries a reason to establish a program and to develop it and something for them to work towards. So the way you describe the style of play, it sounds like it's calculated to drive Brian Kenny mad, just all the bunting, (laughs) lots of bunting. This is a different game, obviously, than Major League Baseball, and bunting can be counterproductive at one level and productive and smart at another level. So not that it's the most important thing whether these teams are playing the most optimal brand of baseball, but do you think they are? Do you think that the bunting and the small ball style play makes sense? And regardless of whether it is the most optimal way, is it the most entertaining way? Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised in that I'm not someone who really appreciates seeing bunts that much at the major league level, but it was a lot of fun to watch here. Like you said, it it is a different game. It's super fast, so much small ball, and it kind of makes sense because there are very few women who are capable of hitting it over the fence since they play on a basically a regulation field. The fence is removed in a little here. But yeah, when the home run isn't really a tool that these players have in their pocket that they're capable of doing, you kind of have to change the game if you want to be able to actually score. And it's different, but I thought it was still really entertaining. It's just something that's not played exactly like you're used to seeing baseball, but that didn't make it less captivating or less interesting to watch. For anyone who's out there who maybe hasn't read the article yet or, or hasn't watched a lot of women's baseball, I think it's only natural to wonder about some of the some of the main statistics. And as you mentioned, there's there's less power hitting. Most of the fastballs top out around the low to mid seventies. Uh, and there's there's a lot of pitching backwards, a lot of either Japanese or like Yankee style pitching backwards, which I think is clever. If anything, it's uh, it's a lot less stubborn. It's a lot more open minded than the traditional baseball mindset. But now, one thing you do mention in your in your article is that the like the the top women's curveballs spin around 2,500 uh, revolutions per minute, which is around the major league average for a curveball spin rate. So I'm not here to make any sort of comparisons, but what I'm mostly interested in is, are these players, do they have access to like trackman techniques? Where did that measurement even come from? Who, who's doing this? And if there is trackman, that that seems to reflect a, a pretty good investment in, in the program and structural organization. Yeah, so the measurements at the tournament were done by Flyscope, which I hadn't heard of before going there. I just assumed it was TrackMan when I saw. They also were doing exit velocity. I don't think they had launching tool, but they did have exit velocity for hitters too. And I'm not sure if that was something that was installed special for the tournament or if that was already there, which they were playing at what used to be the Nationals spring training facility and since has become like a youth baseball complex in Florida. But yeah, it was tracked by Flyscope, and I know all the, the Japanese women were used to those measurements. I'm not sure how many of the American women or women from other countries were used to being tracked on that level, but it was cool to see, to be able to get that sort of more granular data to know exactly what they were working with here. And there is a role for MLB here, which you mentioned in your article, the Trailblazer series that MLB served as a joint sponsor of last year. I'm wondering, even if the goal isn't for these women to make the majors someday, that doesn't mean that that's the only reason why MLB would have an interest in promoting women's baseball. MLB seems to believe that people playing baseball is a big predictor of people watching and paying to attend baseball games and being baseball fans. And so this is obviously a target market aside from just a good cause if you're a baseball league. So 
what is MLB doing and should MLB be doing more and what do you see their motivations as or or how do they view their motivations? Yeah, so they started uh, this tournament jointly sponsored with USA Baseball last year. They're doing it again this year. And like you said, there are very legitimate business reasons to be involved with something like this, that you're, you know, growing a potential future fan base. They've done lots of things with boys youth baseball over the years so it seems like kind of a natural outgrowth of that and yeah that's about the extent of their involvement right now i've heard that they're thinking of expanding that into more opportunities than just one each year down the road but publicly they haven't announced anything other than this one tournament each year but yeah i think that's the level that you have to grow it at is that youth level before america could really hope to have something on the level of this Japanese league that, you know, you kind of need that pipeline in place in order to populate a league like that. And I think investing at that youth level, at the level of schools, is probably the place where any group would need to focus. And so what MLB is doing right now with this annual tournament is, I think, a really good starting place. And if they want to see it grow, probably the place to focus their efforts. So I have two questions. I guess it only makes sense to go one at a time instead of overlapping them. And one, uh, this was the first time in the Women's Baseball World Cup that the tournament was hosted in the United States. As you mentioned, it was at the Nationals' old spring training home. And and you, early in your article, you had an anecdote where you talked to a fan who was there on vacation. She took a a 12-day vacation just to see the different teams play in the tournament. But I was wondering, firstly, what was your your sense of, of the atmosphere? What were the what were the crowds like? Was how much attention was there on the tournament? Like how well advertised was it and how how popular did it seem to be in, in your well trained eye? Yeah, so the people who were there were super passionate for the most part, but those crowds were really, really small, which I think there were a couple of things that were working against it there. One was, you know, school had already started, so not something that kids could go do for the games during the day. It was Florida in August outdoors. <laughs> um, not a great baseball watching environment. And especially for a tournament like this, where there were like three games a day, like no one wants to sit through three games in that kind of heat. So yeah, that was working against it. And I think also like when you talk to players who had been on multiple teams who'd played in the cup for multiple years, it seemed like just because the U.S. doesn't have a strong cultural understanding of women's baseball, that this isn't something that people really get. Like when you say women's baseball, most of them think, oh, you mean softball. It just didn't seem like it was something that really captured a lot of people. Like when these women talked about playing in Venezuela, where like thousands of fans packed those stadiums and were so excited for the opportunity versus here, it was, yeah, a pretty small turnout, which I think was seemed kind of disappointing to some people, especially for, you know, these U.S. women. This is their first time, their first chance to play on home soil. And yeah. Pretty small crowds, but very passionate ones. The second question was, you were obviously you working for Sports Illustrated. You have a a certain amount of pull, so you could presumably get a a decent amount of access no matter what you were looking to to report on. But in your media perspective, as you attended the tournament and and went to talk to some of the players and, and the people in charge of the teams, what was the the media coverage and related to that, I guess, when you were talking to whoever it is that you talked to at Sports Illustrated to figure out if this was something you could even go to cover? What was your experience like in, in requesting permission to do this, presuming maybe it wasn't assigned to you beforehand? Yeah, it was something I pitched. I, like you, had never heard of this event before, I guess, in 
March or April, I was doing some reading and stumbled across it and was like, that sounds really, really cool. And then I started working at Sports Illustrated in May. And it was actually one of the first things I pitched, although I definitely was not confident about them taking me up on it. Like I remember I had a list of potential pitches and it was like this was buried in between like something on the Brewers bullpen management and something about the Braves early success. Like I didn't think that there was a good chance of me being approved to go travel to this and let alone having this be something that would get actual space in the print magazine. But my editors were cool with it and were willing to send me down for a couple of days. So I was there. There wasn't a whole ton of national media there, although there were um, a few, like MLB.com had someone there. There were articles done in like Huffington Post and SB Nation, although I don't believe they had anyone on the ground at the tournament. But yeah, for the most part, it was a pretty small, pretty low-key affair. Like there were local media there. Japanese media had sent several people just because it's more popular there. It's something that there's a larger fan base for. There was a little bit more in the way of international media. There were a few Cuban writers there, which was cool covering their team. But yeah, on the whole, it was pretty small, pretty low-key. So there was an article in Slate a couple of weeks ago in a discussion on Hang Up and Listen with Christina Cotarucci about the benefits and drawbacks of having co-ed youth teams versus single gender. And I don't know what your experience was like as a child, but in Christina's article, she kind of presents both sides and how there can be benefits to having everyone play together. And then there can be drawbacks where it kind of reinforces certain attitudes. Or if you have just girls who are a very small minority on the team, they can get ganged up on or feel out of place. And so there's still a lot of discussion, I think, about what the ideal solution is. And maybe it's easier to have a certain solution in a sport that a lot of girls already play as opposed to one that you're trying to promote more girls playing. So what do you think the ideal solution for softball in this country looks like in the next few years or even longer term? It's a tricky question. And I think in part because softball is a valid, great sport in its own right. And I don't think that growing women's baseball has to mean lessening the appeal of softball. I think it's just a question of being able to create the choice for girls and women who want it that like right now for a girl who wants to play baseball, unless she's willing to be the only girl on her team, she has no choice. And creating a system where they're is a choice where there is such a thing as a girls baseball team at some level somewhere could be really powerful and would go a long way in making that experience better and just making that experience viable, which I don't think would necessarily have to mean much at all in terms of downgrading softball or making softball somehow lesser. I think softball would still have obviously a really strong draw considering how long of a history it has of being played by girls and women at all levels. So Yeah, I don't think that growing girls baseball has to mean doing much to lessen softball. It just means seeing both of them as valid equal sports in their own right. I guess the last thing that we'll ask you before we let you go is as long as we're we're talking about this tournament and and about women's baseball in general, how much of a role do you suppose that this Women's Baseball World Cup plays in promoting the sport itself in that there are there's a there's a dearth of high level women's baseball playing opportunities obviously this would presumably be the the biggest one so 
is how important in your estimation is this tournament to helping more women realize that there could be or should be an opportunity for them to continue playing baseball in the first place? Yeah, maybe this is naive of me, but I would like to think that it could actually have a pretty large impact just because for a lot of these girls and women who have played and want to keep playing, they stop because they think there's nothing there. There are no chances. There's no opportunity. And so to be able to look and see there, there is something there, like there is a chance, even if it's just one team every two years playing, you know, eight games, being able to see that that exists, that there are other women who do this, who play and who have kept playing against all odds over years and years. Like, I think that can be really, really powerful in a decision to keep playing versus switching to softball or stopping altogether. So yeah, like I said, there wasn't a ton of media coverage, but there was some. And if that reaches just, you know, a fraction of girls who have been playing and have thought about stopping, I think that could go a really long way towards just making people realize like there is something here, even if it's small and just every two years. Well, you know, you hadn't heard of the existence of this tournament until earlier this year, and then I hadn't heard of the existence of this tournament until you wrote about it and then published something. And so, with the next Women's Baseball World Cup scheduled for 2020, I guess there's already been some some baby steps in spreading awareness. So, Emma, I'd like to thank you very much for sharing your time and for telling us a little more about the tournament. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. All right, that will do it for today and also for this week. You can support the podcast on Patreon and ensure that there are many more weeks to come by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild, signing up to pledge some small monthly amount, as have the following five listeners, William Figgy, Julia Turner, Randy Stearns, Paul Ferraro, and Bertel Spolander. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. And you can keep your questions and comments and complaints if you have them coming to me and Jeff via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks as always to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. He's working around a wedding and other obligations this week. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope you have a wonderful weekend and we will talk to you early next week. If you sing a song.